Welcome to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry. It is an exciting week on Netflix. One of my favorite shows from the last few years is back, and a show I've been looking forward to for months is set to debut in just a few days. And I got sneak peek reviews for both. Plus, I'm Jeff Braun. There's another new Netflix show that's one of the funniest series I've seen in a long time. Plus, the countdown is on to Fast X. And one of the biggest movies of all time gets a re-release for its 25th anniversary. I would do anything for you. I just want to be good enough for you. I did everything I could for you. For you. For you. It's brave what I do for you, for you. It's not easy. It's hard for you. I worked so hard for you, for you. I could walk through fire for you. For you, 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 for you. So let's start with the returning show I'm excited about on Netflix. I have a spoiler-free review of Season 4, Part 1 of You, which is a sexy psychological thriller. It's kind of like a CW network show, but just more violent and crazy. It's soapy. It features an attractive young cast. It's often described as trashy, which is just fine. I like trashy TV, and it is a well-reviewed show. It's 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's based on a series of books from an author called Carolyn Kepnes, which uh, debuted the first book in 2014. The TV show debuted in 2018, starring Penn Badgley of Gossip Girl fame as Joe Goldberg, a friendly guy who runs a bookstore in New York. This woman walks into his store... He doesn't just fall for her, he becomes obsessed with her, using social media and other technologies to learn everything about her, stalk her, and try to get rid of any roadblock that could get in the way of them being together, including people. In other words, while he might seem nice and charming, he is a bad dude. That's all I'm really going to say about the plot, because seasons two and three bring new locations and new circumstances as he continues to be an obsessive bad guy, and season four really brings some new locations as he manages to fake his way into a new job. And through some interesting circumstances, he ends up in this friend circle filled by some of the richest young people in the city who are all sort of crazy in their own way. And they're all either vapid or jerks or vapid jerks. He actually seems to be the normal one in this group, but we'll get more into the fourth season in a moment. Now, the show is similar to another one about a person with some problematic tendencies, and that would be Dexter, the show about a serial killer who only kills other killers. He was doing bad things, i.e. killing people, but he was doing it under a strict moral code, i.e. he can only take out his psycho urges on other bad guys. So in a way, he's kind of like the cleanup crew. He's ridding the world of bad people, but he's doing bad things to do it. Should we like him? Should we hate him? Should we fear him? He's a complicated and likable character, who lets you in by narrating the show. You also have an ongoing in uh, narration in You from its main character, Joe, who is perfectly cast in Ped uh, Badgley. He's a handsome guy, but not intimidating. He's kind of slight. He's not a big guy. Comes off as this bookworm nerd. So he doesn't appear to be a threat, 
at all. And like Dexter, his narration is almost hypnotic and at many times hilarious. Where it's different is Dexter knows he is a bad guy doing bad things and he's worked his whole life to rein in his urges and channel them toward doing some sort of twisted good in the world. I mean, of course, he's not good. He's killing people, but at least he's aware of his situation and he will never harm an innocent. Joe, on the other hand, he believes what he's doing is right. He's not aware of just how awful he is. He manages to always convince himself he's doing everything, including the trail of bodies he leaves in his wake, to protect the person he loves, even if they don't want his love. And yet, in spite of all the bad things he does, he is also kind of a good person. He's thoughtful, he's protective, he's compassionate, he's empathetic. But, of course, he's also a stalker, kidnapper, and killer. He's just a bad dude, a creepy dude, and yet somehow a likable dude whom you often find yourself cheering for. And then you feel kind of dirty about that. And that's the testament to the show's writing, to create this character who's both decent and reprehensible. And the show always manages to make you like him, only to realize you should hate him, and he should be locked up forever. As for season four... They're doing it differently this time. They're splitting the season in two. So the first five episodes are out now. They debuted Thursday, February 9th. The second five debut on March 9th. I have seen all 10 episodes. Thank you, Netflix, for the preview access, but can only discuss the first five. And I will start with, wow, did I have fun watching these. As I alluded to earlier, it's another new location. Joe has managed to weasel his way into a good job. He seems to be just living a normal life. It's an academic job, which pairs well with his literary knowledge. I mean, he is a genius who loves books, so it's kind of a perfect job for him, even though technically he's not qualified. And he also seems to be staying out of trouble. But circumstances lead him to being introduced to the aforementioned elite and wealthy group of socialites, and that's when the crazy starts. Also, the first half of the season is a whodunit, and he has some hilarious observations about that as he laments the fact that he is in a whodunit. But it is a pretty solid whodunit. It's full of red herrings, which point to multiple suspects, and then when it's finally revealed, it's a really satisfying experience, and it has an excellent cliffhanger at the end of the fifth episode to lead into that second half of the season. And then that second half of the season flips everything upside down, but can't talk about that just yet. You is not high art. It's a trashy, soapy, sexy thriller that is self-aware. And through that self-awareness in this season, it actually manages to add some social commentary about the rich and powerful and how they could be doing a little better to help the world rather than just watch it burn while they snort cocaine and laugh at their servants. And once again, it manages to make you like Joe, to root for him. You want to see him win, which of course is bad because he's still Joe Goldberg, a good guy who does really bad things but thinks he's doing the right thing. He is dangerous. He is a menace to society. I should add from a technical standpoint, the cinematography this season is tremendous. They exploit the location in excellent fashion. It's glamorous but cozy, Slick, but historic and rustic. I love it. It's just, it's a fun, fun show. I could not stop watching. Like, I started watching it on Monday night. I was going to watch one, maybe two episodes. Well, I watched all five of the first half season episodes on Monday, and then the next five on Tuesday. And as a result, I was a sleepy zombie on Wednesday. I just couldn't stop, could not stop. But I do like that they've split the season in half because each half is distinct. 
And again, I'll tell you more about the second half in March. In the meantime, for the first half of season four of you, I will give it four and a half couch cushions out of five. Lots of fun. And I love and hate how complicated my feelings are towards the main character. Just excellent writing and acting all around. Again, you can find you on Netflix. Final thought. Not sure yet if this is the final season. I have seen some reference to it possibly being the last one, but it's not been confirmed. And they certainly left the door open for another season uh, for sure. So in the meantime, I'll have more on the new show debuting on the 15th on Netflix that I'm excited about a little bit later on in our show. Up next, Jeff will furiously come up for air as he explains Kunk on Earth. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. There's a hilarious new comedy on Netflix in the guise of a documentary series. It's called Kunk on Earth. Apparently, I've only been given half a minute to tell you about my venture up humanity. That's hardly long enough to explain the pyramids. It's obviously just big bricks in a triangle. I'll be asking questions. What was the Soviet Union? And go to every corner of a globe without corners. Do we know if China has a roof? So join me, Philomena Conk. This is Conk on Earth! Watch on BBC iPlayer. How was that quick enough for you? British comic actress Diane Morgan plays Philomena Kunk, a journalist of sorts who in this series looks to track the history of human life on Earth, and she's terrible at it, and it's very funny. As she traces the history of mankind, she interviews experts in various fields, asking them silly questions, getting everything backwards, generally making a mockery of everything these people have dedicated their lives to. It's sort of like Borat in that regard, or The Daily Show, but unlike Borat, she comes off a little more genuine. I think with Borat, probably people quickly sussed out that he was putting them on, but she comes across mostly as a normal human being, and people might actually think she's a journalist when she's not. The reaction from the experts is varied. Some just go along with her nonsense. Some push back. It's all fantastic. I don't know what they're told beforehand or afterwards, but I wish they had a behind-the-scenes doc because it's probably funny in its own way. The show is also filthy, and the second episode deals a lot with religion, so if you're sensitive about that, you will definitely want to avoid this series. There's also a recurring character whom we only hear about, her friend Paul. She tells stories about her friend Paul, who has seemingly had a series of misadventures that I doubt he would want her making public. It's good stuff. It's gross stuff, but very funny. She's got this amazing deadpan delivery and again like Borat you kind of sit in awe as she's just messing with people with a straight face uh, wondering how she ever got through it with a straight face frankly um, she's my new hero in that regard it's weird she, she looks familiar to me but I went through her IMDB page and I didn't recognize any of the titles although I did discover that this is not her first time playing Philomena Kunk. There have been a couple of other series and a TV movie with the character. Hopefully those find their ways uh, to our TV some, some, sometime soon. I guess it must have just been on the BBC in England. As for Kunk on Earth, it did actually come out in Britain last year. It just debuted on Netflix Canada last week. There are five episodes. Each is about half an hour long. You could tear through it in an evening easily if you wanted to. And that actually was my plan last night, but I was enjoying it so much, I decided I should try to savor it a little bit more instead of burning through it all in one shot. So I stopped after two episodes, but I'm sure I'll finish it up this weekend. I highly recommend it if you don't get offended easily by foul language and uh, outright sacrilege. Kunk on Earth is available now on Netflix. The other thing I'm excited about this week is the countdown is officially on to the first part of the last part of the Fast and Furious saga. I'll have the tuna. No crust. 
No crust. I love this part. I live my life a quarter mile at a time. For those 10 seconds or less, I'm free. What are you smiling about? Dude, I almost had you. That's how it all began 21 years ago, and Fast X opens this May. It's part one of a two-part finale to the popular Fast and Furious series that began 22 years ago. The first trailer is out this weekend. As we record on Thursday afternoon, it is not out yet, but by the time you hear this, it probably will be. And for the last nine days, they've been releasing these legacy trailers for the first nine movies. Notably absent has been the spinoff Hobbs and Shaw, which starred The Rock and Jason Statham, and therefore is being ignored as much as possible by Vin Diesel because he doesn't get along with The Rock. And that movie had little to do with the regular gang anyway. But the hype is officially on for Fast X, and I'm getting into it. The movie series about a gang of street racers who end up basically as superheroes has grown more and more bonkers over the years, really shifting into a new gear with Fast Five at a time when most franchises would have been petering out. And to prepare myself for Fast X. I'm rewatching the whole series. I started this week with the original 2001's The Fast and the Furious. It's fun to rewatch from a standpoint of time because, you, well, for starters, just look at how young they all are. Look at how much the series has changed along the way, all that sort of stuff. And I like the first movie more and more every time I see it. It arguably has the worst acting because they're all pretty new actors. They're not particularly good at it. But as the series wears on, they get better. The writing got better, or at least the writing started playing to each actor's strengths better. And of course, the most notable difference between then and now is just how low stakes that first movie is right now. And these movies, they're, you know, saving the world. But in the first one, Vin Diesel's team, they didn't even use the word family yet. They just rob in semi-trucks filled with DVD players worth, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. But in F9, the last movie, two of them go to space. So the stakes have climbed dramatically over the series. But there's something, you know, just very cozy about that low stakes nature of the first movie. It makes it easier to feel like we're part of the family as they're all kind of basically normal people still. There's definitely more money thrown at the screen as far as the action is concerned in the later movies. But the action in the first Fast and the Furious is also, I thought, pretty impressive. The car races are very cool to watch. They're incredibly well done. And then the big action set piece at the end, I found very thrilling. The gang is, uh, you know, trying to hijack a semi. The driver's trying to kill them. Paul Walker shows up at the last minute to save the day. There's also a guy in that movie uh, by the name of Leon who's part of the team who never comes back in any of the other movies. I don't know if we'll see him in Fast X because Lord knows they do love bringing back people uh, even back from the dead, as we've seen more than once throughout the movies. And on that note, I kind of expect we'll see Paul Walker's character, Brian, reappear. Maybe not in part one of Fast X, but probably in part two. Um, we got a tease of that at the end of F9. They also use CGI to resurrect him at the end of Furious 7. So it can be done, and I think it will be. It's sort of the only thing they can do to top themselves, and topping themselves is what they do best. So watch for the Fast X trailer this weekend. Maybe I'll check back in a few weeks as I continue my series rewatch. One trailer that did come out this week is the trailer that's coming for the new movie uh, starring Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. It's called Air, and it follows the history of shoe salesman Sonny Vaccaro and how he led Nike in its pursuit of the big time. 1984 has been a tough year. Our sales are down, our growth is down. Sonny, I brought you in here to grow the basketball business. People don't know what the hell a Nike is. What's a Converse? NBA all-star shoe. There's nothing cool about Nike. You would have to have a pretty compelling pitch. I can tell them the one thing the other companies can't compete with. 
Our basketball division is terrible. I do not love it. This is where you come up with a brilliant idea that no one else can see. Let's hear it. I got it. I found him. Who's that? Jesus? Can't afford it. I'm willing to bet my career on one guy. What's the plan? We build a shoe line around just him. I need the greatest basketball shoe that's ever been made. Who's the player? Michael Jordan. Matt and Ben co-wrote the movie with another guy, and they star in it, and Ben Affleck directed Air. Uh, of course, they had great success 25 years ago with Goodwill Hunting. A little less success more recently with The Duel, but that was a good movie. It just wasn't a big hit. This might garner a little more interest, uh, not being a medieval period piece. The cast also includes Jason Bateman, Viola Davis, Chris Messina, and Chris Tucker. There's no Michael Jordan in the trailer and no one listed as playing Michael Jordan on the movie's IMDb page, so we'll see how they handle that. Air hits theaters April 5th. Got a name for it? Air Jordan. I don't know. Seriously? Maybe it'll grow on me. Hey, one more basketball note. Uh, Netflix, I just was surprised to learn this. They launched a two-part, uh, 90 minutes per part documentary on one of the greatest basketball players of all time, Bill Russell. You can find that on Netflix. Bill Russell, legend, it debuted on the 8th. You are listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett, he's Jeff. We are The Couch Potatoes. I mentioned it is an exciting week for me on Netflix because of a returning show that debuted on February 9th, a show called you season four the first part of season four and there's a new show debuting this upcoming week on wednesday february 15th it's a documentary about one of the things i love most golf and before you say boring just hear me out the show is called full swing and i've got a review every year these guys fight for their career you picked a hell of a year to start following the pga tour fighting to win every time I play. Whatever gets it done, that's all that matters. Winning is so hard on the PGA Tour. At the end of the day, you're playing against the best players in the world. They want to step on my throw, I want to step on theirs. It's winter, go home. Beautiful weather. All it takes is one week for your life changes. Quiet in the house, action. If I want the game that I love to be played by future generations, the game needs to be pushed forward. So Full Swing comes from the same creative team behind another successful Netflix sports docuseries, Formula One Drive to Survive, which, by the way, sees its fifth season debut on February 24th. Drive to Survive debuted in 2019, and as the show's following has grown, so has Formula One's following. Their ratings have basically doubled as a result of that show. So now they're trying their hand at professional golf, a sport that, for many, is boring, elitist, snobby. More often than not, you will hear many people say, ah, golf is the most boring sport to watch. So I think this show presents an opportunity to give people a different view of the game and the people playing that game. And indeed, as they said in that clip, they picked a hell of a season to document pro golf because what happened in golf this year turned out to be one of the most compelling times in the sports history, perhaps in all of sports history. 
The Saudi-backed Live Golf Tour sprung up this past year, and they poached several big-name golfers from the PGA Tour, offering them tens of millions of dollars to go play for them. $50 million, $100 million, $150. They offered Tiger Woods a reported $700 million just to go play. Guaranteed money, i.e. they don't have to win tournaments to get paid. They just have to play, and they don't have to play nearly as often either. So it's controversial and is dividing the game and is being referred to as sports washing, i.e. the Saudis are trying to hide their human rights atrocities with big-profile sports, and these golfers are taking heat for taking the money. But how do you turn down that money? In the PGA, tournaments are four days, usually 100, 120 guys-ish They play two rounds, then the field is cut in half. So the guys who don't make the cut go home and get paid nothing. The winner, of course, gets paid the most, usually at least a million bucks, whereas the guys who finish behind will make at least a few thousand. But you have to play well, and really you got to win to make more money. Not just be there, not just show up and play. So along comes this live tournament, and everything just goes bonkers. Tiger Woods can afford to say no because he's, well, Tiger Woods. You know, we mentioned Michael Jordan in the last segment. He he is one athlete who has transcended sport. Tiger Woods is as well. He is one of the most successful athletes of all time, and he is not hurting for cash. But other guys, like take Englishman Ian Poulter. He's one of the golfers featured in this series. He's in his 40s. He's on the back nine of his career. He's had a decent career. His family is not wanting for anything, but he wants to make sure that his family is secure, and they never want for anything. Liv Pump comes along and offers a reported 20 to $30 million just to sign on And then he still has the opportunity to earn a few more million dollars through the season. So how do you say no to that? So it's just, it's a really compelling story that just happened to drop into the show's lap as they were following these guys through the first season of Full Swing. But did they stick the landing? I should throw in a caveat here. It is impossible for me to give this series an objective review because I love golf. I suck at it. But I love it. It's my primary hobby. I play it from the moment the weather allows to the moment it does not. And then I play through the winter in virtual golf simulators. I watch golf. I know who all these guys are. So naturally, I was compelled to watch this show. I knew it was coming up on the 15th. This past Saturday night, I was sitting at home looking for something to watch. So I dive into... Netflix and scrolling through the preview content that the Couch Potatoes have access to. And I saw that pop up, so there went the rest of my weekend. I plowed through six episodes Saturday night, watched the final two on Sunday. The format is pretty simple. They focus on one or two primary golfers in each episode and tell their stories. Whether it's two golfers like Jordan Spieth and Justin Thomas, who came up at the same time. Their episode is called Frenemies, because they're good friends, but they're also big rivals in the game. And it was somewhat jarring, but in a good way, because this show takes us behind the scenes and gives us access to these golfers in ways we've never seen. We see them at home. We see them goofing off with friends. We see and hear them swearing. Oh, no. We see them as people, not just golfers. And that really helped with uh, one episode in particular focused on a guy named Brooks Kepka, who in recent years was the world's number one golfer. I never liked him. Cocky, brash, comes off like a jerk. But he's fallen on hard times the last couple of years. He's had some injuries, and he struggled to get his game back. And when you see how good he has it in life, like he's got a gorgeous wife, he's got a big house, he's a young guy who's already had a raging successful career, but he's not happy. He needs to get back on top. It shows you the grind of the game, how tough the game is mentally, and how as competitors it is tough for these guys to catch fire and then lose it. 
I often say golf is a stupid game. It's a stupid game, and I am stupid for playing it. You've maybe heard the quote, golf is a good walk spoiled. Or Robin Williams had a famous routine about how a bunch of drunken Scots decided to invent a diabolical game wherein you basically hate yourself for a few hours because it's tough. Golf is hard, and yet it is addictive. And for these guys, their addiction is also their profession. Eight episodes, eight different stories focusing on various players, to some of the game's elite, to some of the younger rising stars. And all of the episodes do a wonderful job at helping you get to know them. In some cases, you get to know their families, the things holding them back, and the possibilities for their future. And throughout the show, it does sprinkle in little bits from other golfers and make sure to include just enough footage of Tiger Woods, even though he is not a feature star of the show. And the final episode focuses on the guy who is arguably the most popular player in golf outside of Tiger Woods, and that is Rory McIlroy. He had a pretty wild season, so his personal story was compelling, but he also spoke out the most against the Live Tour, so the whole Live storyline kind of comes to a, to a head in this episode. But here's the thing. I, uh, I sort of feel like the show failed to really capitalize on the, uh, the Live Golf storyline. Like, it was one of the most compelling storylines in all of sports, like I said earlier, and through the season of Full Swing, it just felt like something that was kind of lingering in the background. Even in that final episode, I wasn't satisfied that they had fully told that Liv story. Like, I feel like there should have been an entire episode devoted just to Liv, how it started, how it played out, who left the PGA Tour, what's in store, etc. But instead, they just kind of touched on it here and there, and rather delicately, too. It was like they were scared to dive in headfirst. So I think they kind of botched that component. I didn't... They didn't do a horrible job. There's There's just... You know, there was enough there to get the gist of it, but I think they could have zeroed in on it a little bit more. I suppose their intention was never to document that storyline. The goal was to tell human stories. Who are these golfers? What makes them tick? So in that sense, they definitely succeeded. It just so happened that Liv popped up while they were doing this. I know, again, I know who all the guys are who were featured in the show, but I know them a lot better now. I know what drives them. They're not just golfers to me. They're people, and they all have compelling stories. So if you like golf, Full Swing is a must-watch. If you like documentaries, I think you'll enjoy it. If you're just bored and you're curious, I still think you'll enjoy it. So I'm going to give Season 1 of Full Swing four couch cushions out of five. Up next, one of the biggest films of all time is back in theaters. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff, he's Brett, and the weather has been just horrible across most of the country in the past couple of weeks. Here in Winnipeg, where we are, we came out of the deep freeze a week ago, but we also had about a 10-day cold snap that was just unholy before that. And so when we get to the dead of winter, usually about the middle of January, I start tend to start a rewatch of something truly beloved by me. Last year it was Seinfeld, the year before that it was Parks and Recreation, and this year it's Frasier. What is the meaning of this? Where is his mate? I'm sorry, I don't know what you're talking about. My favorite pair of socks reduced to a single argyle. Nor is this the only example. The keen observer yesterday would have noticed that I left the apartment wearing two shades of black. Explanation, please. 
Frasier's available on Crave in glorious standard definition in the old 4x3 aspect ratio as it was when it first aired starting in 1993. HD would be nice, but what are you going to do? The 4x3, though, is awesome because most of those 90 sitcoms that can turn into a widescreen aspect ratio just look terrible. Uh, if you look at Seinfeld on Netflix, there are a lot of shots that look Absolutely ridiculous because of that transfer. Frasier, of course, was a spinoff of Cheers and one of the most successful spinoffs of all time. It ran for 11 seasons on NBC. It won 37 Emmys over the years. Set in Seattle, which was the go-to city of the early 90s, following the life of psychiatrist Dr. Frasier Crane, his father Martin, his father's home care worker Daphne, his brother Niles, and his co-worker Roz. Frasier and Roz... Uh, hosted a talk radio show on the fictional KACL, or Cackle, and they hung out in a coffee shop, which was a very Seattle thing at the time. The show Friends gets all the credit for popularizing coffee shops, but Fraser was there a year earlier. It was a great show, very smart, although not in the way people think. A lot of people think it was meant for academics or something because Fraser and Niles were pretentious and snooty and made a lot of references to the opera and things like that. But more often than not, the joke was about them being pretentious and out of touch with normal people and you didn't have to get the opera references to get the jokes. The show's bread and butter, though, would have to be that there would be a miscommunication that set up a series of worsening consequences and was usually at its best when they would try to plan something fancy or special, a party, an important dinner, or a weekend away. It was farce at its best, and frankly, when you boil it down, it was Three's Company. It was just fancy Three's Company. The most Both those shows had a lot of the same episodes. So I've been having a blast tearing through it the past few weeks. I started with I started with season three because I've seen the first two seasons so, so, so many times. When the show first began, I remember I would tape every single episode on our VCR, and then I'd watch every single episode three or four times the week it aired, waiting for the next episode. So I rarely go back to season one, especially because each episode is still just tattooed on my brain. Uh, besides being a quality show, it also now has the 90s nostalgia factor, which I'm a big fan of. And so Frasier has uh, been my comfort show of early 2023. It's important to have a comfort show in the winter, and I recommend Frasier. And again, it is on Crave. And if you're curious to know what is out at the movies this weekend, I was shocked to learn that this one is back for its 25th anniversary. Listen to me. I've got you. I won't let go. Titanic was called the Ship of Dreams. And it was. It really was. So if you happen to remember the date that Titanic debuted, you might be wondering, uh, why are they releasing this now? Because Titanic originally opened December 19th, 1997. So we missed the, the mark by a, a couple of months for that 25th anniversary. But um, James Cameron wanted it to come out for Valentine's Day weekend because it's a love story. And in the original release, its biggest single day was Valentine's Day. And his Avatar sequel came out in December, so why compete with yourself? But yeah, you know, it's funny now that I think of it, I remember going to see Titanic on Valentine's Day. We'd already seen it once, my then girlfriend and I. But back then, because you couldn't buy tickets online, because they didn't have these self-serve ticket wickets, yeah, I had to go to my local theater 
at like noon when the box office opened and stand in line for an hour so I could buy tickets because there were 50 other guys there doing the exact same thing, buying tickets to see Titanic with their girlfriend. And uh, then we had to come back like two and a half hours before the movie started and still ended up with garbage seats. We were all, we were in like the fourth row, uh, sort of tucked against Oof. the wall. So yeah, and that's a long movie, right? So, yeah. but uh, yeah, I, I, it, it's funny that, the feelings of nostalgia that it brings back just for the experience. You know, the, that girl happened to be my first love. So every time I hear Titanic music, I think of that. And then I remember just how good, how much I enjoyed the movie. And it's now been remastered in 4K and 3D. So I know that, Jeff, you would probably opt against a 3D option if you went uh, to go see it. But you just watched this, didn't you? I did. I, I I was sick over Christmas, and uh, I missed a lot of Christmas, so I was watching some comfort stuff, and I was like, oh, Titanic takes a whole chunk out of the day out, so I watched Titanic uh, at the end of December, so it's very fresh in my mind, so I, I, I do want to see it on the big screen again. I, I watched it twice when it came out as well, the first time, to see what all the hype was about. I watched it at a cheaper run theater the next summer. This thing was in theaters for like nine or ten months or whatever. Uh, I went one uh, really hot day because I didn't have air conditioning. And I was like, two bucks to watch a three-hour, 15-minute movie with air conditioning. Let's go Titanic. Yeah, Titanic. I haven't seen it in years. Uh, so I think I might actually have to do this because I still have to go see Avatar. So maybe I can have a James Cameron week next week or something and go see one of them and then go see the other. By the way, Titanic still is the third biggest Worldwide movie of all time, $2.19 billion behind Avengers Endgame and Avatar. And Avatar The Way of Water, as of this moment, is in fourth place with $2.177 billion. So uh, eventually Avatar is probably going to pass Titanic, but uh, I imagine... I don't know. Here's the thing. No idea how long this re-release is going to last. I don't know if it's a week. I don't know if it's two weeks. But uh, get in while you can. Do you, do you want it on Blu-ray or DVD? I got it on. I have it on Blu-ray. They put out a really good fifteenth uh, anniversary edition, so it's a sharp-looking Blu-ray. But yeah, this is a definitely a movie that screams for the big, uh, big screen. If you're young and missed the original theatrical release, I would. This is a must-see in theaters if you've never experienced that before. Also out this weekend, Magic Mike's Last Dance, starring Channing Tatum, or as Jeff Braun once called him, Tatum Channing. That's all the time we've got. I'm Brad. He's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes. Remember, if it requires getting up off the couch, don't bother.